Now, if you would, open your Bibles. <clears throat> the title of the message comes from verse 21. Sir, we would see Jesus. But I'd like for us to begin reading at the beginning of the chapter. I'll limit myself to making too many comments. We'll read these verses and um, help set the scene. Then it'll also help us understand what the Lord's saying at the end of the chapter. So beginning in verse 1, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then said one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and had the bag, and bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus, Let her alone. Against the day of my bearing has she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Much people, the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there, and they came out, or they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he would raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away. They went away from the Pharisees, went away from their religion, went away from their traditions, and believed on Jesus. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him, and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him, when he called Lazarus out of the grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause the people also met him, for that they had heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world has gone after him. Now there's a lot going on here, isn't there? lot going on. There's many people who are fascinated with Jesus, the miracle worker. And they wanted to see more. They wanted to see more of these miracles. Others, others saw this man, Jesus, had the power over life and death. And buddy, they saw a way out. They saw a way out from under this oppressive rule of Rome. This man's got power over life and death. Let's make him king. He can set us free from, from this uh, oppressive rule of Rome. And others, the religious leaders, hated him, wanted to kill him, wanted to put him to death, put Lazarus to death, because he's taken numbers away from them. There's a lot going on. In the midst of all this, somebody still came to worship. All this going on, the, the Passover and the feast and the festivals and the people wanting to kill him, the people wanting to make him king, somebody wanted to worship. Somebody came to this cesspool of religion to worship. Look at verse 12. 
And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Now I love this request of theirs. Sir, we would see Jesus. Now these men were Greeks. They were Gentiles. And apparently, from what the writers say, they were Jewish proselytes. They had converted to Judaism, but they were Greeks. And they did not feel free to just go up to the Lord themselves and begin talking to him. Yet they did truly desire to see Christ. And they wanted more than just to lay eyes on him. You know, they could have stood on the street and watched him sit on that donkey. They They wanted more than just to lay eyes on him. They wanted to see him. They wanted to see him as he is. They wanted to see him in his glory. They didn't just want to lay eyes on him. They just didn't even want to just be in his presence. They wanted to enjoy his presence. They wanted to really hear him speak. Never man spake like this man. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to have fellowship with him. And you notice they didn't ask to see a miracle. They weren't looking for a party trick. They wanted to see the Lord Jesus. So they didn't just sit around waiting for lightning to strike, did they? They went where he was, and they sought him. They asked after him. They sought the Lord where, he, where he's found. And I is my hope and prayer that y'all came here this morning with this same desire. Sir, we would see Jesus. It's a fair expectation to ask the preacher, to show me the Lord Jesus Christ. Sir, I would see Jesus. That's a fair request. That is certainly, I hope, what you come expecting to hear and to see. These Greeks were right to seek the Lord this way. I don't read any Jews seeking him this way, but these Greeks did, and they were right to seek him this way. Miracles are miraculous. Now, I don't know if you can define a miracle by saying it's miraculous, but that's the best I could come up with. It, uh, miracles are miraculous. They're really something. I mean, it's really something that the Lord raised Lazarus from the dead after his body had started to decay and stink. I mean, I'm, I'm not trivializing that at all. It's really something. But miracles in this fleshly realm don't do us any good. They, will, they do not, they cannot, they never will save anyone. If you look over at cha- the same chapter, verse 37, but though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. They did not believe even though they saw the miracles. It didn't do them any good. What we need is a spiritual miracle. We need a spiritual miracle. We need life from above. The arm of the Lord, the power of the Lord, is not miracles. The power of the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the power of the gospel is not working miracles. It's preaching Christ crucified. That's the power of the gospel. We don't need a miracle. We don't need a miracle of healing or tongues or something like that. It wouldn't do you any good if I was up here speaking in tongues. You couldn't understand what I was saying. We need the forgiveness of sins. That's our problem. We need the forgiveness of sins and their right to come and desire to see the Lord this way. But look at verse 22. This presents a problem for old Philip. 
Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. And again, Andrew and Philip, they go together to tell the Lord. Now, these Greeks come and ask Philip, Sir, we would see Jesus. Now, how's he going to handle this? These Gentiles. He heard our Lord say, It's not right. It's not meat to give the children's bread to dogs, to Gentile dogs. He heard the Lord say, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He heard the Lord say that. He was instructed by the Lord himself, don't go the way of the Gentiles. Well, I hear these Gentiles coming asking to see him. What's he going to do? He he goes and finds Andrew, so Andrew will know what to do, you know. And on top of all that, this is going to make these Pharisees mad. If he'd take these Gentiles to the Lord, I mean, they're already mad. Now he's just going to aggravate the situation, make him even more mad. You see these Gentiles with the Lord? I mean, everything's here. They've been, you know, this band of rebels kind of, you know, for all this time. Well, buddy, now everybody's holding and praying for him. He don't want to ruin this. You know, this all looks good to him. But they go and take this request to the Lord to see, well, what, what the Lord will do with it. In verse 23, Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, it doesn't seem like the Lord really even is answering their question, is he? But he is. He's answering their question directly. If the Lord Jesus is going to be seen as he is in his glory, it's going to be in these coming days when he is made to be sin for his people, when he's made to be a sacrifice for those sins, when he suffers and he bleeds and he dies there on that cross and they take his dead body down and bury him in a tomb. And three days later, he raised again for our justification. Because all that sin that was laid on him is gone. All that sin has been put away under the precious sin-atoning blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're going to truly see him as he is, this is where we're going to see him. This is where these Greeks are going to see him in his glory. And he says, the hour is come. The hour that you see him be glorified has come. Now our Lord spoke of this hour often. He said, mine hour is not yet come. Mine hour is not yet come. Now it's come. The hour of hours is come. And the Lord tells his disciples, the hour is coming that the whole world is going to see Christ in his greatest glory, in his redemptive glory, saving his people through his suffering and death. And if we're going to see Jesus, we're going to see him the same way these Greeks did. When we won't see him with physical eyes, but that doesn't really matter. People saw him with physical eyes and didn't believe. We're going to see him with eyes of faith, accomplishing the eternal salvation of his people through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. This is the only way that salvation can be accomplished is through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That is where the greatest glory of Christ is seen. And he goes on explaining this in verse 24. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now, the real glory of Christ is not seen in miracles. I mean, those were glorious things, but his real glory is not seen in miracles. It's his redemptive glory. It's saving sinners. 
It's making sinful men and women holy and righteous. It's in him doing what no other man can do. It's in him accomplishing what no animal sacrifice could ever accomplish. It's putting away the sin of his people and giving life to dead sinners. That's his greatest glory. And the Lord uses the illustration of farming to illustrate eternal life coming to his people through his death. Now, Danny, I'm no farmer, but I can be amazed at the glory of a plant that grows from the ground from just one seed. I mean, it really is amazing. We take it for granted because it just happens all the time. I mean, it's a whole field full of corn that just came from a handful of dead seeds. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing something so large can come from something that's so small. Something so green and juicy and full of life can come from a dry, dead seed. When I was growing up, my mom had to garden, and she'd make me help in that garden, planting them corn seeds and weeding it and stuff, and the little sprouts come up. As much as I hated that extra chores, it really was astounding. See, this little green thing, it breaks through the ground. And I felt that seed. I mean, I'd bite them and just, man, they're hard as rocks. And look at this plant that's growing from, I mean, that's amazing. Everyone who has eternal life has that life in them. They have eternal life because the Lord Jesus Christ died for them. Now, I grant you, he didn't look like much to the natural man. He just, there's no beauty about him that we should desire him. He, to man, he looked like a single dry, dead seed. But look what his death produced. My soul. Countless millions have been given eternal life because of the death of this one man. The, and, his, and you know, it didn't stop with his death. It's his burial and his resurrection. In his death and in his life, countless millions of people have been given eternal life. And because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, any sinner, any sinner is free to come right into his presence begging for glory or for mercy. These Gentiles, these Greeks, they didn't feel free to come into his presence. If you're a sinner, you're free to come into his presence begging for mercy because of his sacrifice on Calvary's tree, because of seeing him in his glory, his redemptive glory. But before any of that can happen, the Lord must die. The sacrifice must die. If he doesn't die and he does what the people want him to do, just become king and sit on a throne and, and defeat Rome, he could have done that. Easily he could have done that. But if he did that, just sat on the throne, defeated Rome, restored the kingdom of David, and ascended back to the Father. There'd be no salvation. The sacrifice must die. It wasn't good enough that the Father... Here's the time of the Passover. It wasn't good enough that the Father at home selected a lamb, watched it for the appointed number of days, made sure there was no blemish in it, and then didn't kill it. The lamb must die must die. Our Lord must die. The law requires death for sin. You see, we don't need a miracle worker. We don't need a political ally 
We need a Savior who can save us from our sin. That's our greatest need. And how thankful we are, that's his greatest glory. His greatest glory is fulfilling our greatest need. And everyone for whom Christ died, they'll be saved. They'll be given eternal life, and they will follow him. They'll endure because they, that's, this is the evidence. They've been given eternal life. Look what our Lord says in verse 25. He that loveth his life, his physical life, shall lose it. He, he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it under life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now that's just, you know, everyone for whom he died, they'll follow him. And the father will honor them. But look what he says in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I into this hour. Now this salvation, this eternal life, comes at great cost, great suffering of our Savior. And he knew the suffering that he was going to endure, the death, the cursed death he was going to die. But you know, his personal suffering was never his greatest concern. It concerned him. I mean, it, 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 of course it did. But that was not his greatest concern. His greatest concern was always to glorify his Father, to do the work the Father sent him to do. And he's concerned about this suffering. He said, yet, this is the reason I came. I'm not going to dodge it. And he prays in verse 28, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I'll glorify it again. Now, the greatest glory of our Savior wasn't in the miracles, wasn't turning the water into wine. It wasn't walking on the water. It wasn't healing the sick or raising the dead. The Father promised to glorify His Son and honor His Son because of His sacrificial death for sinners, because He was the Lamb slain. And that was seen so clearly when the Father raised the Son from the dead. He raised Him from the dead, glorified Him, brought Him back to glory because the sin that was put on Him is gone. And the Father glorified him, raised him from the dead. Now, verse 29, the people therefore that stood by heard it and said, What thundered? And others said, An angel spake to him. Some people heard, didn't they? Some people heard the Father. Some people just heard a noise. Some people heard thunder. Some people heard words. What's the difference? Our Lord says in verse 30, Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me. But for your sakes, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Here is the hour. Here is the time that's been promised from Genesis 3. The prince of this world is going to be cast out. Yes, the heel of our Lord will be bruised, but he's going to crush his head, the serpent's head, and cast him out. This, he said, signifying what death he should die. The drawing power of the Savior comes from his greatest glory. It's through the salvation of his people, through his suffering, and through his death. And the people understood exactly what he was saying, that he was going to die. And they said in verse 34, the people answered him, Now we've heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. How sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Well, now it's true. It's true that Christ abideth forever. But before he reigns, 
He must suffer and he must die. He must purchase his kingdom before he sits on the throne eternally. See, these religious Jews, they're just like people in our day. You know these people. You know them. They're just like people in our day. They take their favorite passage of Scripture, they take their favorite doctrine, and they apply it to everything at the exclusion of everything else in God's Word. It's true that Christ abideth forever, but they ignore the rest of the Scripture that says the Messiah must be stricken. The Messiah must be cut off. The Messiah must pour out his soul unto death. And all that suffering and that death must happen before he reigns. Both will happen, but the suffering and the death must take place before he reigns. But they weren't interested. They they ignored that because they weren't interested in the suffering and the death of the Savior because they weren't looking for a Savior. They weren't looking for a Savior at all because they didn't see their own sin. What they were interested in is an earthly king to set them free from Rome, to restore the Jews to the glory that the world, you know, they had in the world politically. Well, David was king. Just like people today, they want a God, little g, that they can control. But who can control everybody else and make them healthy and wealthy? It's the exact same thing. People haven't changed. We'll look at verse 35, how our Lord answers. Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While you have light, believe in the light, that you may be children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. You see, they had no idea what the Lord was talking about. He was talking about the light. You have the light. Believe in the light. Walk in the light. Look at verse 37. They had no idea what he was talking about. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Yet the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw the glory, when he saw his glory and spake of him. Isaiah saw the Lord just like these Greeks desired to see Jesus. He saw him. Then he understood. Oh, now I see because I see everything in the light of him. Now, that puts an end, just a complete end to the idea of man's free will, doesn't it? They cannot believe. Scripture says both. They will not believe and they cannot believe. They cannot believe because their nature is contrary to the things of God. They cannot believe. They just can't understand. They've got to be given new life. Now, in our text, some believed. Some did not believe. Some people saw Jesus. Some people didn't. Some people will be drawn to this crucified Christ. Some won't. Here's my question. How can I tell if I've seen Jesus? I mean seen him. How can I tell? Have I been drawn to him or haven't I? How can I tell? Well, simply put... (laughs) If you've seen him, you know it. 
I remember Brother Henry saying this one time. If the light's been turned on, you know it. If you've been drawn to him, you know it. But our text gives us five or six ways that we can see. If we've seen Jesus in his redemptive glory, first of all, we've been drawn to Christ. Not religion, not religious activity, not a set of doctrines. We've been drawn to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The elect are called to Christ. They're irresistibly drawn. They come willingly, but they're irresistibly drawn to Christ. They're like, Peter, Lord, to whom should we go? I can't leave. You have the words of eternal life. In verse 32, our Lord says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all unto me. Not all men. That word men is in italics. It's been added by the translators. It was not in the original. That's not what our Lord said. He said, I will draw all to me. Well, who is the all he's talking about there? What's well, all his people? It's all his elect. It's all those that the Father hath given me. Our Lord said, they shall all be taught of God. That's the all he's talking about. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I'll in no wise cast out. This is the all he's talking about. And what this means is all sorts of men. I'm glad it just says all. That leaves the door wide open for all to come to him, no matter the distinction. You know, we draw all kinds of distinctions between people, don't we? This just says all. All. Men of all nations, men of all skin colors, Men of all sexes, men and women both, all men of all nations. Wasn't that comforting to these Greeks? Men of all nations, not just the Jews, all Greeks too. Even those Greeks, all. That's such a comfort to, I'm sure it was a comfort to those Greeks. I can promise you it's a comfort to me. And all are drawn to Christ. And i tell you how they're drawn to him. The drawing power of the gospel lies mainly in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not people feeling sorry for poor little Jesus. Won't you accept him? Won't you let him? No, that's not it. That's not why you're drawn to him. And we don't need man-made means of drawing a crowd. Just preach Christ. Sinners will be naturally drawn to the Christ of the cross, naturally drawn. Just preach him. Sinners will come. They'll find him. They'll come because the only place sin has ever been put away is at the cross, by the Christ of the cross, and sinners are interested in that. Just preach him. They'll be naturally drawn to it. A sinner is drawn to Christ crucified because at the cross I see the greatest display of God's love for sinners. It's a horrible, horrible scene, what happened at Calvary. That's what sin requires, the suffering and the bloody gore and death. That's what sin requires. But all that's happening because God loves sinners. We see his holiness. We see his hatred of sin, but we see his love for sinners, that he would do that to his son to save his people from their sin. At the cross... We see God's loving kindness. It's with loving kindness have I drawn you. What loving kindness? The loving kindness displayed at Calvary. 
what God would do to his son and what the son was willing to endure because he loved his people. For the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross, endured the cross, despising the shame because he loved his people. That's love for sinners now, for sinners. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perventure, maybe for a good man, a kind man, and some would even dare to die. God didn't send his love, son to die for people like that. But God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet what? Sinners. Christ died for us because he loved his people. He hath loved us and given himself for us, for these all. Now, like I said, we draw a lot of distinctions between people. You know, we try to divide everybody up. I tell you what these all, every one of them have in common. They're all sinners. They're all completely lost in sin. And Christ answers their every need. That's why they're drawn to him. The death of Christ was not in weakness. Now, the day comes, I'm going to die. That day will be a day of I will die in weakness because this flesh just can't go on anymore. Christ's death was not in weakness. It was in power. He gave up the ghost. He didn't die because of weakness. He gave up the ghost. He died in power, in his power to put away sin, in his power to satisfy God. And this is his power to draw sinners to himself. So we preach Christ crucified. The gospel is the means, the only means that God uses to draw sinners to Christ. So we preach Christ crucified. Now I grant you under the Jews, that's a stumbling block. Under the religious people, that's a stumbling block. Under the Greeks, under the worldly people, it's foolishness. But under the all, under them which are called of God, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is all the power we need. The power of Christ crucified. Now the birth of Christ, well that's a miracle isn't it? A miracle that cannot be understood. I'm thankful for it. His perfect life is a wonder to behold. He's the only perfect man to ever live and I'm thankful for it. His righteousness is my righteousness. His birth a miracle. His life, a wonder. But his willing, substitutionary death for me, where he suffered the hell that I deserve, where he said, I'll lay down my life for my friends, for those that I love. When I see the wonder that he took my sins in his body on the tree, that he suffered as my substitute. What he suffered, he suffered for me. The torment that he suffered, the death that he suffered was because of what my sins deserve. Oh, I'm thankful. I'm so drawn to him. What what an amazing gospel. He would lay down his life for his friends. Of course they're drawn to him. Of course they are. Now, we see much of the glory of God, don't we? We see his power as the ruler of his creation. We see his power as healer. I've seen people healed. Never my wildest imagination thought they'd recover from this disease or sickness, and they're healed. Wow, doctors sure were impressive. (laughs) They were. 
But God healed Dan. He's, his power, his power's provider, how he provides for this whole planet. It's, it's really amazing. But his greatest power, every believer will, will say this. This is their testimony. The greatest glory of God is how he saved me from my sin by making Christ guilty of my sin, fully punishing my sin in my substitute so that while all I can see of me is my sin, yet my sin no longer exists because Christ put it away under his... But he didn't just cover it and it's still there. It's gone under his precious blood. Now, brethren, that's glory. And that's the glory that draws sinners to Christ. If you've seen Christ, this is what you've seen. You've seen his redemptive glory. Second, if you've seen Jesus, you'll follow him. You will confess him publicly in believer's baptism, and you'll continue to confess him publicly by identifying with his people, meeting together with his people, identifying with them, no matter the cost. The cost won't matter to you. In verse 25, our Lord says, He that loveth his life is going to lose it, but he that hateth his life in this world will keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, if any man seen Jesus, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. That's what it is for a believer. You will use this physical life for the glory of the Savior. You will use this physical life to follow him. Very unlike people in religion. Look over in verse 42. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him. Now, this wasn't believing on him with saving faith, but they, they saw some logic in this. They saw some fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. They saw his power. They saw these things. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Then they didn't believe him. If you believe Christ, if you've seen him, you're going to follow him. You will confess him. But they didn't lest they be put out of the synagogue, for they love the praise of men. They love this flesh more than the praise of God. They love the praise of men more than what our Lord said, if any man serve me, him will my Father honor. If you've seen Jesus, you'll prefer the honor from the Father much more than the honor that comes from the flesh, much more. Third, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. In verse 44, our Lord Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, or not exclusively, not only on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Now, you know nobody's seen an image of the Father. Nobody's, there's, there's no such thing. But you do have an understanding of who the Father is. You've seen the Father's will in redemption. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father's will in redemption. You've seen how the Father can be just and justifier through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father's wisdom. Now he can save sinners and still be holy. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the power of the Father to elect a people before he ever created the earth and save those people by his drawing power. If you've seen Jesus, 
You've seen the love of the Father. You've seen the mercy of the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Look over in chapter 14. Here our Lord told the people this. The disciples didn't understand. They didn't understand yet. Look in verse 5. This is when they're alone together, the crowd's gone, and Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. How can we know the way? And Jesus saith unto him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, if you've known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth, you know him, and you've seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, Show us the Father, and it will suffice us. That will satisfy us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. So how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father which dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. These are the words of the Father. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father because the Father and the Son are one. They're one. They're one in deity. They're God, equally God. They're one in power. They're one in holiness. They're one in purpose. They're one in this matter of redemption. They're one. In every way, they're one. Well, if you've seen the Son and you've believed on the Son, then you've seen the Father and you've believed the Father. Fourth, if you've seen Jesus, you have light. You have light. You have understanding because the glorious light of the gospel has shined unto you in the power of God. You understand the gospel because you've seen the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 46, here in our text, our Lord says, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. You have light. God's elect, though, when they're born into this world, are born in darkness. They're born in sin. They're born in the darkness of sin, the darkness of unbelief. But after God moves in power and gives you light, calls you, draws you to Christ, you're not in the darkness of sin and unbelief anymore. Anymore. Now, we still have sin and unbelief. Recently, and I wish I could give credit to who said this, but I can't remember for sure who, who said it. It was either Tom Fortner or Joe Terrell. Somebody asked him about unbelief. Do you still have unbelief? He said, I try not to believe every day. I have unbelief in me, but I can't help it. <laughs> I believe. Why? You have light. God gave you light, so you believe. You see, he's given light. We still have sin and unbelief in us, but you're not under the power, the ruling power of that darkness and unbelief anymore because lights come into your soul. And we won't understand everything that's in this book. Believe me, we won't understand everything that's in this book. But we will understand. We, we will have understanding of the Scripture. We won't understand everything in this book, all the words of God. We won't understand everything that God is doing any more than the disciples did. 
The disciples were with our Lord personally. Three, three and a half years. However long his earthly ministry lasted. They were with him every day. He rode into Jerusalem. They didn't know what was going on. Later they did. They looked, oh, it's written. Now I see what he's doing. Now I know what he was doing there. We won't understand everything God's doing, but we'll know the truth and we'll love the truth and we'll believe the truth when we hear it. When we hear it, we say, that's it. That's, he's my hope. That's it. It's not doctrine and things like, well, we you believe those things, but it's Christ. When you, he's, that's him who my soul has longed for. That's him. And last, if you've seen Jesus, you have life. You have eternal life. In verse 49, our Lord says, For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. If you've seen Jesus, you believe the word of God. And you believe the word of God because God gave you life. You don't have life because you believe. No, you believe because God gave you life. And believing Christ is life eternal. To know him is life eternal. Now, it's not perfect life yet, is it? But it will be. It will be someday. We have the fulfillment of what our Lord said in verse 26. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. Well, where he is, that's where his servants are. In this world, where he is, where he's preached, that's where his servants are. And one day, where he is, it's in his great high priestly prayer, he said, Father, I will that those whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. One day, oh, this life is not perfect now. But one day, we're going to leave this sin, this flesh, this unbelief behind and be with him where he is. If you love him now, if you see him now, one day you're going to see him and our salvation will be complete on it. All right. Well, the Lord bless you.